0: Welcome back to Seeking Excellence Book Club. We're diving back into the Screwtape Letters. It's a new week. Hope you had a great weekend. Welcome back. Um, let's get into today. So today we're talking about the will. Surrendering to the will of the father, right? The the tempter finds out that there's a possibility that his patient will be drafted into the war, and have to go into the war. And again, they're trying to figure out, like, is this a good or bad thing? It kind of all depends on his... Um, disposition, right? Is he actually surrendered to the will of the Father? Is he actually surrendered to the will of God? Or is it something that we can, um, you know, really conjure up a lot of anxiety and uncertainty in his mind and a lot of fear that he can start to be manipulated with and actually drive him out of God's hands? All right, so here on the first page, we hear a little bit about this, right? Where he says, your patient will, of course, have picked up on the notion that he must submit with patience to the enemy's will, meaning to God's will. He says, what the enemy means by this is primarily that he should accept with patience the tribulation, which has actually been dealt out to him, the present anxiety and suspense. It is about this that he is to say that will be done for the daily task of bearing this, that the daily bread will be provided. And so he says, it's your business to see that the patient never thinks of the present fear as his appointed cross, but only the things he is afraid of right? So a lot of times this is true, that we we don't think about the fear or suffering that we're experiencing as what God has called us to, the cross and the suffering that we are um, supposed to carry each and every day. Rather, we like to think about things in the future, other things that could be our cross, right? Um, we don't like to be reserved or fully given over um, and surrendered to what God's will is for our lives. Instead, we we think about all the bad things that could happen and get caught up. And I think the devil does a good job of getting us caught up of like, how would I respond to that? God, you can't let that happen, etc. cetera, right? Instead, we have to recognize that actually the stress and the fear sometimes, obviously if it's self-induced stress, right, I'm not talking about procrastinating on your homework and the stress that that causes, but actual stress of actual suffering and bad things that are happening in the world, the things that could happen, can be the crosses you've been um, given to carry on a given day. And so he recognizes this and he says, rather... Think of only the things that he's afraid of; that those might be the crosses that he's called to carry, and and keep him in his current present state of mind. Thinking about how incapable he is, incapable he is of bearing that weight, right? Because there's something to anxiety. Anxiety is all about worrying about things that are happening in the future. That is really interesting because we worry about our capacity and our ability to handle the things of the future, even though we're thinking about our present self having to deal with those, right? And so. If you think about that, even just from a military perspective, right, think about the example that's, that's given here. This man's wor- worrying and wondering about what he might do in battle when he hasn't gone through basic training yet, when he hasn't been trained, he hasn't been physically trained, he hasn't been trained with a weapon, he hasn't been trained through all these things. And there still is a lot of bad things that can happen even post that training. But it's just interesting that in that military perspective, we also have the same thing happening with grace on the spiritual side, Right. Um, So when you take this analogy to the spiritual side, you understand that when you, a lot of people, for example, will fear marriage, right? A lot of young people, I know I've talked with a lot, who are afraid of getting into marriage because they fear that they don't have what it takes, they fear that they wouldn't be able to handle it, they fear that they might end up like their parents if they came from a broken home, and what we don't understand or what we greatly underestimate is that God gives us grace with those things, right? That when we get... Actually, into those situations, God is there to support us, to strengthen us, to give us grace, but He's not going to give us grace now to feel that we're confident and capable of carrying those crosses because He wants us to rely on Him. He's always calling us closer to Him and to be more dependent on Him. And so, going on here, we hear more about, as He's talking about fear, He says, On the other hand, fear becomes easier to master when the patient's mind is diverted from the thing feared to the fear itself. You can start to think of it as a state of mind, right? I think this is really, really good because I often like to, you know, when I'm talking with people, loved ones, friends, even myself, when I find myself getting afraid of something, I think it's so helpful to always ask the question, well, what are you actually afraid of? What is the actual worst case scenario of whatever it is that you're fearing, whatever it is that you're worried about? And so often when we actually list that out or we explain what it is that's bothering us, there's not nearly as much to be afraid of as we originally thought right? And when you start to understand that, then you can start to say, wait, I don't need to be so afraid of all of this stuff. I don't need to be so concerned and worried. And I'm actually just afraid of the fear. I'm not even thinking about something that's realistic or practical or possible, right? And so he says, you can therefore formulate the general rule in all activities of mind which favor our cause, encourage the patient to be unself conscious and to concentrate on the object, but in all activities favorable to the enemy, bend his mind back on itself. He says, let an insult or a woman's body so fix his attention outward that he does not reflect I'm now entering into a state called anger or state called lust. Contrary, let the On the contrary, let the reflection, my feelings are now growing more devout or more charitable, so fix his attention inward that he no longer looks beyond himself to see our enemy or his own neighbors. And so there you can start to see how the devil starts to play these kind of mind games, right? Where he wants us to be aware of the things he wants us to be aware of and not aware of the other things. So how do we flip that on our head? On, on, how do we flip that on its head and do the opposite, right? We want to start to think that when we are being led into sin, when we start to feel the anger rise up, we want to be aware of that. We want to recognize, oh, I'm, I'm teetering or getting to the border of, of actually lusting after this person, or I'm really falling into the sin of anger. And those things, I think, start to come through prayer. When you're spending time in silence and prayer with God, you start to have an actual increased awareness of when you're actually venturing off into enemy territory, right? When you're entering into this state of sin. At the same time, don't dwell on these positive feelings and emotions. And this isn't to be like overly Catholic and like, you know, saying you should beat yourself and and live like St. John the Baptist, but don't overflatter yourself when you start to feel positive emotions, right? Oh, I'm going more devout, more charitable. And you actually want to be focused on outward things at that time, right? When you're actually starting to think of things and start to focus on how you're seeing those virtues in other people, how you still want to grow and emulate other people who are better at, you know, so you know, X, Y, or Z. Than you are, and so that's how you can kind of flip that on its head to be aware of it when you're actually leaning into sin, and try to be less aware and less focused on um, when you're actually doing good and when you're actually becoming more virtuous. Um, going on here, he, he talks about how you can use this kind of sense, um, or when, when it is flipped on its head, he he says that the British are the miserable type of creatures who loudly proclaim that torture is too good for their enemies, meaning that you know the enemies of of Great Britain. We think about this in today's world you see a lot of um i think of ben shapiro when i hear this now of people who are talking about the people who attacked you know the israelis and understandably so they're very upset especially jews and they're saying that like torture would be too good for them right that they should be um tortured and killed or just destroyed the enemies you know speaking about hamas and that's all you know very understandable but then he says he goes on to say, they say that torture is too good for their enemies, but then they give tea and cigarettes to the first wounded German pilot who turns up at the back door. And so really interesting for me is I read this the day after hearing about the story of St. Maria Goretti again at RCIA. And it's so interesting here because there's something so beautiful and so Christian about this, right? That when you see those points in movies where enemies are together, we just watched the Monuments Men the other night, and there's that that part of the movie where the German soldiers, you know, sneaks up on the two Americans and they end up having a cigarette together, letting him go and he lets them go. There's something so beautiful to that because there's a humanization of the enemy in the midst of that, right? When you can start to see in this other person, wow, this is just a scared teenage boy. He doesn't want to die. I don't want to kill him. We don't want to die. Let's all just share a cigarette here and let each other go, right? And so there's this beautiful like humanization of the enemy that when the enemy is a A thought, right? When we don't think of them as people, it's easy to say, oh, just flatten them out, atomic bomb, like just crush them, kill them, exterminate them. We use we even use termination terminology like that, right? Exterminate them that we would use for insects or bugs or you know, something that isn't human. But when you actually see them face to face, it's interesting how it does humanize them. You start to see them, you see them playing with their kids or just having fun and laughing together and things like that. You start to realize, wow, even though these are my enemies, they're actually human. And it does almost, in a sense, make praying for your enemies a little bit easier because you start to humanize them and appreciate that about them. And so he says here that you're going to have, no matter what you do, some benevolence as well as some malice in your patient's soul. The great thing is to direct the malice to his immediate neighbor, whom he meets every day, and to thrust his benevolence out to remote circumference to people he doesn't know. This is another thing that's really, really interesting and really common, I think, in today's world, where you have people who are super benevolent, feel, you know, would give their lives to save the planet. You know, you think about people who are like gluing themselves to the street. Um, and I don't mean to just always make this political. You can have this on both sides of the aisle. Um, but you do have this. This is kind of, I think, the the left side. And then we can think about the right side of it, if you will, depending on what kind of camp you fall in. But just giving examples of things, people who glue themselves to the street. Or you can think of somebody who goes out of their way for a neighbor or a friend or things like that. Um, but then treats their own family really poorly, right? And so that can be across any type of lines or any type of spectrum where people can be very generous outwardly, especially when it develops some type of positive reputation that they want in whatever social circles they're running in. Um, many of us may have been raised in homes. I know I felt like this at certain times, um, especially you know with my, my father at different points where it was like, it seemed, so he had plenty of, of generosity and charity to give to other people. And then the patients seem to dry up, (laughs) right? Once we walk through our own front door. And so I think a lot of us have experienced that. And you see people who are uh, willing to give themselves fully to these outer causes, to these animals or people that they never meet or will never see. But then the people who they interact with every day, they're very judgmental, harsh, crude, um, mean, spirited. Uh, We even have this, and I think this exists, you know, where we have so much... um, love and respect and appreciation and, and compassion for people who are foreign or abroad, right? Um, and these other countries going through these other sufferings, and we can turn a blind eye um, and ignore the homeless that, that are right before us here in the United States. And so, um, yeah, all this is really important. So he says, the malice becomes wholly real and the benevolence largely imaginary, right? Because these people who, it's easy to to fall in love with these causes, right? To put flags in your bio and things like that, and to align yourself with these causes that demand nothing of you, but that you get outraged and post about it on social media. But the things that actually demand things of you, right? This is why a lot of people don't want to get married, because marriage demands a lot from you. And so it's harder to love your wife than it is to put a Ukraine flag in your social media bio. And so we don't like, we, we avoid these things. We move away from this, right? We move away from, and, and Catholics are very guilty of this. Um, I think a lot of young Catholics who uh, get very passionate about these different, even think about those, again, going more on the conservative side here, those of us who might get really obsessed with uh, federal politics, right? You think about, you listen to the Daily Wire every day and we're diving deep into it and we're obsessing over it in a sense, but we won't volunteer. But then our parish needs somebody to clean the parish or to help out with youth group for a Saturday or whatever it is, and we're like, oh, no, I can't do it. But I am getting very worked up and concerned about all these political issues that I have no influence over. Right, and so those are the kind of things that kind of draw us back into the day to day life and choosing virtue and holiness every day, and we want to make it so that our benevolence becomes very real and our malice largely imaginary right or non-existent. That's the opposite of what the devils want. then I love here at the bottom, he kind of goes on with this for a little bit in the last part of this chapter, he says all sorts of ver- all sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect or even in some measure loved and admired will not keep a man from our Father's house. Indeed, they may make him more amusing when he gets there. Going back, because I think this is really, really important. I just had this conversation with somebody the other day, so I'll give you a little example about this. And sorry, this one's getting a little long, but I thought this was a really good chapter. All sorts of virtues painted in the fantasy or approved by the intellect, or even in some measure loved and admired, will not keep a man from our Father's house. So if you're not living out the virtues, what he's saying here is, even if you have you know, talked about virtues... And you've loved them and admired them and appreciated them, but you don't cultivate them within yourself. You cultivate virtue through action, right? This is why seeking excellence. Greatness is a habit. Excellence is a habit. We are what we repeatedly do, says Aristotle. So excellence, therefore, is not an act, but a habit. If we don't habitually develop the virtues, then he's saying that we just become more amusing to the devil when we get down into hell. Why is that? This is the the quote-unquote, I heard somebody, I had the argument with somebody the other day where they were talking about how Catholicism has so many rules. There's so many things you have to do on a regular basis, going to Mass, saying your prayers, learning more about the faith, spending time in prayer, um, going to confession, avoiding sin, all this stuff. And he's like, "Well, well, why can't I just go be a good person? Why can't I just be a good person somewhere? And this is what the devil has gotten a lot of us to believe that we can subjectively come up with our own idea, our own standards for what it means to be a good person. And as long as we're that, as long as we think about the virtues and we think about generosity, we think about kindness and, and, you know, we try to be kind and we hold the door for people and things like that, then why why can't we go into heaven, right? And it's like, well, because the scripture doesn't say that you just hold the door for people and you get to go to heaven. Scripture says you need Jesus Christ. Scripture says to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then God has given us the church that has given us the the guide path, the path, right, the habits, the actions that lead to that perfection, that lead to that holiness. And so when we don't do that, then we're not actually a good person. And, and that's something I think is really hard for people to believe. I think it's one of my biggest pet peeves all the time is hearing people say, oh, this person's a really good person, but they left the Catholic church and they don't, you know, they're divorced, you know, twice and they've left the Catholic church and they teach people that, uh, things that are very contrary to the Catholic faith, a.k.a. the truth, but they're a really good person. And I'm like, what, what, is, what does being a good person even mean to you if that's what it means to be a good person? And it doesn't mean you have to go around saying they're a bad person, but I don't think it's good for us ourselves or to be teaching other people that that's what it means to be a good person. And this, but I was a good person, he's saying, are some of the most amusing people in hell that think that they're, they're just utterly surprised that they're there because they were, they were good people. What do they belong here for? And this is what I think we have to warn people about. And we have to obviously, you know, warn ourselves about, but I assume if we're here, then we're not um, necessarily falling into that trap for ourselves because we want to grow. We want to get closer to God. Doesn't mean we're automatically saved, but it does mean that we're not going to be these types of people who just think that we can make our own standards up and live by our own decisions, our own choices. Um, But if we are, and we all have been, I know I have been in my own life. I was 15, 16, 18 years old, 20 years old living a life of deep sin and going to mass and retreats and thought that that was okay because I made my own rules and charted my own path. And I quickly learned that it was not. And since then I've lived a much more fulfilled life. And so if you are in that place, I encourage you to leave it and start to submit yourself to the authority of the church and live the way that the church asks us to live because God gives us these guidelines for our own goodness and our own thriving. God came so we might have life. Jesus came so we might have life and have it abundantly. And that's what awaits us. So, Let's get to it. All right. God bless you. Thanks for joining today. We'll see you tomorrow.